not a very well-known passage in the uh, book of Chronicles I've asked Kate to read. There's one particular line, which is why um, I chose it. it. It says this, in those days, it was not safe to travel about. For all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. I kind of thought that's on the button. So let's read that. Kate, can you unmute yourself? In. Well done. I'm going to put I'm going to put the words up that you're uh, saying, just so that people get a chance to to hear it, to see it. Okay, just read it nice and when you're ready. Yeah. Hang on. I just need to get my Bible out because actually it's partly cutting off the end of it. So oh, maybe I can move. Bear with me a moment. I could probably move this if you need. It's okay. I looked it up earlier, so it's right here. Right. Hmm. The Spirit of God came on Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God, without a priest to teach and without the law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, and he was found by them. In those days, it was not safe to travel about, for all the inhabitants of the lands were in great turmoil. One nation was being crushed by another, and one city by another, because God was troubling them with every kind of distress. But as for you, be strong and do not give up, for your work will be rewarded. When Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. Then he assembled all Judah and Benjamin and the people from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who had settled among them, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign. At that time they sacrificed to the Lord seven hundred head of cattle and seven thousand sheep and goats from the plunder they had brought back. They entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. All who would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, were to be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. They took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shouting and with trumpets and horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. 
So thanks, Kate. That was uh, really good. I've now got you large on the screen, but never mind. Um, <laughs> Scary. So I'm sure you, like me, have been seeking the Lord daily to hear his word and to have some insight into what's going on in our world. And um, suffering and pain in our world is usually a, a private matter um, on a personal family or even a small community level. Um, we haven't been engaged in a, in a world conflict or a conflict that's sort of close to us for 75 years. But now we have this suffering in our community at a city level, a national level, and a global level. So I'm just posing the question, what's happening and what, if anything, can we learn? And this is such a big topic that um, even if I could understand it properly, I'm not sure I'd be able to share it in just a few minutes, but I'd like to share some thoughts and come back to this passage as well. My first point is really, we should always be the people of God's word not sensationalist but seriously listening to God and reading his word and praying and I have to say as I'm sure you've seen it there's a fair amount of hokum pokum theories around at the moment um, and I would advise you to stay totally clear from probably the majority of them there are some good talks actually uh, on the internet and there's one that has been within our networks recommended by Louis Giglio, it's called 20 Inches to God's Mercy. And it's a call to prayer based on 2 Chronicles 7, 13 to 15. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a great talk. And we read it out to each other last, that scripture last Sunday, and I recommend it to you. And we'll put a link in the newsletter. But I would just say, because there's so much talk about, you know, is this the end, end times, um, that national suffering, such as famines and earthquakes and wars and pestilence or plagues, are, according to the Lord Jesus, characteristic of this age. And by this age, I mean the age of grace from the cross and the Holy Spirit coming to the return of the Lord. And in his final week, the so-called Olivet Discourse, where he talked to his disciples, Jesus says that we will experience these things across the globe alongside his grace. Now, people might struggle with that. How can we have grace and, and so much um, going on in the world? But it's important to realize that one work is finished, which is the work of forgiveness on the cross and the work of grace, that we can be fully and completely reconciled to God and our sins are forgiven. But the creation itself hasn't yet been redeemed. And we are waiting, it tells us in Romans 8, for the revelation, if you like, of the sons of God. Until that full time of revelation, and the whole of creation is groaning until that time, travailing. And, and God subjected it to frustration and to slavery in hope for that redemption to come. So it's like redemption has come in two phases. The phase one, which is God has redeemed through his blood, uh, those that will believe in him. And, and the day is coming when he will restore all things, make all things new, make them all right and come and judge and rule on the earth. So we're in this kind of interim period. And it's really important for us to understand that. 
So Jesus says this is characteristic of, of the age. And I think I mentioned in last week's talk two significant plagues when I talked about faith, hope and love in times of crisis. Um, and they are not on their own indications that the end of the age has come. Jesus described them as uh, these things must happen first in, in Luke. And he said in Matthew that these are the beginnings of sorrows. But he has fixed our sin and relationship completely. And what we're waiting for is, as I said, the redemption of the whole creation, the redemption of bodies, which will only come with the full revelation of him on, on his return. So we are living in the end times, but we have been living in the end times for the last 2000 years. And we are certainly closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. That, of course, is self-evident. But this isn't, in my understanding, it. This isn't it. This is just indicative of the time that we're living in. And it's hard to say this, but it's true. But plagues, famines, earthquakes and famines usually happen somewhere else. And, and when they happen somewhere else in the world, we're not quite as concerned about them as when they happen on our doorstep. But they have been happening for the last 2000 years. And this one, which is quite unique because it's global and it's, it's only really global because now man can go to and fro throughout the whole earth almost at will with a great speed. Therefore, things like pestilence and uh, disease can spread so quickly. So this global one, um, what is it about? Uh, and, 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 in, and is God moving through it? And, and, and if he says, what is he saying? Uh, there's an expression I heard this week that kind of resonated with me, which was this, divine disruption. So this will bring me back to the passage and it struck a chord with me. But in the history of Israel, as we just read, there was a cycle. It seemed to be a continuous cycle that went on throughout the Old Testament. That God blesses his people. He, he takes them into, the, if you like, the promised land. He gives them an abundance. They get used to this. They take it for granted. They become independent of God. As it says in Deuteronomy, that um, they grew fat. They started to kick. Uh, they rejected him. They abandoned him. Their rock and their savior. And they turn their backs on God and they pursue idols. False gods in his place. And after a long while of God calling them back into relationship with himself, he then allows, or depending on where you come from, uh, he sends an enemy or a hardship who oppressed the people of God. They suffer under this burden and then eventually they humble themselves and cry out to God and he sends a deliverer. So in the book of Judges, that would be a judge like Gideon or elsewhere it's a prophet like Elijah or Daniel, or a priest like Ezra, or a governor like Nehemiah, or a godly king like Hezekiah, Josiah, or Asa. And they lead God's people firstly to repentance, and through repentance into a restored relationship and purity of worship with God. And this calling and every example of it has at its center a, dis a divine disruption, an oppression that is sufficient to get God's people's attention and call them back to repentance and in this reading as i said you'll notice that it was a time of great disruption it wasn't safe to travel as now and the nations were in turmoil as now but the lord the lord said through his prophet the lord is with you when you are with him 
And if you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. But as for you, be strong and do not give up for your work will be rewarded. So I'd like to say just first off in the covenant that we're in, um, difficult times do not, underline, indicate God's presence or absence. God has promised and committed through his son, through his death and resurrection, to never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised to be with us. So then there's the age-old question, why do the righteous suffer along with the wicked? And this is a theme all the way through the Psalms and the prophets. It's such a difficult question. But the only answer seems to be in the love and the person of Jesus, who came into a suffering and oppressed world and was himself rejected and oppressed and mocked and humiliated. This week I've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, and I noticed how after Jesus was handed over to be crucified and flocked, he was mocked by the Roman soldiers who mocked him because they said he said he was a king. And they put a purple robe on him, a crown of thorns on his head, and they beat him with fists on his head. But just before that, before the, the Jewish leaders had handed him over to Pilate, they mocked him. They blindfolded him. They beat him. They said, prophesy to us if you're really a prophet, if you're really the Christ. So being the prophet and the priest and the king, he underwent a real mocking you know, from this world, from me in my sinful state, they spat at him, if you could imagine the humiliation of that. So Jesus entered in, if you like, to the corruption and, and, and the fallenness of this world. He tasted it. He experienced it. He knows it. So there's no one like him who, who, who is born um, and experienced. So he entered into the suffering. And that's the only real way we can understand suffering, because that God in Christ entered into it and felt it and experienced it and he feels and understands the pain and in all their affliction it tells us in Isaiah he was afflicted and somehow the righteous suffering is part of God's redemptive plan for all creation that's about as much as I can understand of it but as part of it and entering into it graciously under God's hand then um, we see, if you like, the unfolding of God's plan. God always moves slowly to judgment. He always moves slowly to divine disruption. So going back to this passage that uh, Kate read to us, just want to bring out a few things for us. It says, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Obed, he took courage. And it's so important for us in this time to encourage ourselves in God. I hope I know some people found this, the podcast I did on encouraging ourselves in God helpful, but it is so important that we take responsibility for building ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, looking for the mercy of God. So we firstly are responsible for encouraging ourselves in God. So when Asa heard the words, he took courage, and that's so important. He then removed the detestable idols. And now is the good time, the best time, to get rid of anything that impedes our relationship with God. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of stuff that impedes our fellowship with God because this is the time now, particularly to seek God. It then says he repaired the altar. And I just felt that this was a, to find a place in our lives, an altar, if you will, where we can humble ourselves 
and pray before the Lord. In uh, Louis' talk, he talks about the 20 inches to God's mercy. I'm not going to spoil telling you what that is. Find out for yourselves. But in the 20 inches to the mercy of God, we find the altar of God. We find that place where we pray. And he assembled all of Judah and Benjamin. And it's so important that the people of God stay together, which is what we're doing tonight on, on, our, um, on our call. And then it says, at that time, they sacrificed to the Lord. Now, God has given us the perfect sacrifice in the body of Jesus Christ. There's nothing to be added to that. But there is a sense where we can commit ourselves to the Lord. We can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And then it says they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord with all their heart. They committed themselves. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. So you just see how God's divine disruption led to a reviving of God's people. And there's a key verse in Romans that seems to come out a lot at this time, which is Romans 2 verse 4. It says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The goodness of God, the kindness of God leads us to a repentance, a change of heart, a change of mind which is interesting because the previous verses in Romans were all about God's judgments, God's intervention. But these divine disruptions lead us to turn our faces to the Lord, to seek him. So there is within this virus, this pestilence through which we're all affected and it's disrupted all of our lives. I'm asking a question, is there in this a way that God is, if you like, divinely disrupting and and, and causing us and encouraging us to seek him, to humbly pray, and to see the goodness of God, which leads us to a true repentance and to be in a true relationship with him. Is it, in fact, a wake-up call to the church and to the world who has turned their backs on him? God wants to revive his people. I've no doubt about that. And through them, impact the world. And I was thinking, what do I mean by revival? What? And I asked myself the question, what is revival? And it's a sense of the turning of hearts and minds of the people of God in a sustained and deep way so that large numbers of people find the true God who restores and changes their lives. And this is a fruit reaching out to affect the world around us. And this is what we want, isn't it? So whilst we're praying in this time for God's mercy, let us also pray for God's work to expand and to increase and, and to be revived. And this, by the grace of God, is what Asa was able to do. He led the people into this revival. Now, 80 years ago, a man called Wilbur Smith, who I've never met or never really heard of, but he wrote a book about revivals in the Old Testament. And he says there's nine characteristics of them. And I just want to briefly mention from them because I think we can learn from this. He says they all occurred, every revival in the Old Testament, and there are several, all occurred in a time of moral darkness and national depression. So I'm going tick. We have that. Each began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the energizing power behind it. And could it be that instead of that servant of God, now is the time for the church of God to be the people who are consecrated? to seek God's kingdom, to seek his word, to seek his will to come. And each revival rested on the word of God, as this one I just went 
through with on Isaiah the prophet preaching the word. And so we must pray that the word of God clearly goes out at this time. Not a mishmash of theories, but a clear voice, a clear sound, the word of God. And every revival resulted in a return to true worship. And each witnessed the destruction of idols. And each revival recorded a separation from sin. And every re revival, the people returned to God's laws. And there was restoration of great joy and gladness. And it followed by a period of national prosperity. So in our cry for mercy, which God has given us, and this is how he wants us to pray, let us also call for the reviving of God's work. Not just a small move, but a, a mighty change and, and restoration, the repentance of the people in the world to a knowledge of the true and living, the living and true God. So there's, no, there's, there's a huge amount that we don't know and we don't understand, but we want to come back, as it were, humbly to the word of God. And let us firmly believe and pray that God will work good in this time. I believe he moves slowly in these divine disruptions. And I believe passionately that God is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And we can see this deeply in the heart of God. And I'd like us, I'm gonna hand over briefly to Mariel just to lead us in, into prayer. But we know that God's heart is, is moved deeply. We know that Jesus was touched with the feeling of our infirmity. We know it says in Isaiah that in every affliction he was inflicted. But there's a verse in Romans 8, which is about praying, that I just want to bring to your attention. And it's a startling verse. Romans 8.26 says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Just want you to think about this just for a moment. The spirit of God is interceding through our prayers with a groan. The spirit is groaning. God is groaning, groaning to such a depth that it can't even be expressed in a intelligent word. At the very heart of God, there is a longing and a groaning for the whole of creation to come back into order and his place of relationship and fellowship with himself how he made it the spirit himself is groaning and he who searches the hearts in verse 27 knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of god and we know that because of this heart of god because of this intercession of the spirit of god because of this prayer we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that's because God is so intimately involved in his creation. He hasn't wound up the clock and left. God upholds his creation. He's inwardly, passionately, intimately involved he sustains all things by the word of his power and the holy spirit longs to to intercede and pray through us that god's word and work will be done and god can work all things together as it were for his purpose and good 
for those that love him because of this outworking of the longing of the Spirit of God. So I just pray that our hearts will just take on that gentle Holy Spirit intimacy and burden and, and hear his voice and pray, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Be glorified at this difficult, difficult time. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to ask Mariel if she'll uh, just take this forward.